shoes today, but here we go. I think we're here now. All right. Well, we, um, you've probably noticed as we've been working our way, if you've been visiting with us or we're working our way through um, the Apostles' Creed together, we ask a lot of questions. That's really how I write sermons. I ask questions and answer them from Scripture, and it turns out that's a good way to write a sermon, or at least it works for me. Um, but we believe that asking the right questions leads us to the right answers, and those right answers build us up in the faith. Uh, there's, there's an example of a, of, a, of a time when right questions lead to good answers. There was a small community in New England in the early 1700s, uh, and they were having trouble determining whether or not those people that they were burying were actually dead. Uh, and they feared they have, may have buried some people alive. And I'm serious, this, is, this was actually a, a problem um, in, in the old days. There's actually a, a phobia for being buried alive because this was common. One group here in this town decided to resolve the issue of uh, this potential problem uh, by burying the people who were presumed dead with a canteen of water and a little bit of food and and they had devised a way to get extra air into the coffin and signal to those above ground that they needed some help. <laughs> it's just funny to think about, but they did. Very expensive, complex solution that they had come up with. What it, what it did is it was ensured that the in, in the event of an inaccurate death diagnosis, that um, those who were buried alive might have a chance. Another group set out to resolve this issue by installing a giant spike in the lid of the coffin so that when it was closed, the spike driven through the heart would ensure, indeed, they were burying a dead person. Uh, both groups were answering different questions, aren't they? The first group was asking, how can we ensure the safety of those who are inadvertently buried alive? And the second group was answering the question, how can we ensure that we're only burying dead people? And it's a good question, but it ended up with an interesting answer, didn't it? So two very good questions addressing the exact same problem, but the different questions lead to different answers. We try to ask the right questions so that we come up or we can use God's word to answer appropriately. When it comes to theology, we try to keep those questions simple. First question then for this morning I normally don't tell jokes like that at the beginning, so forgive me if that bothers you. It's one in a blue moon. Uh, question then, first question this morning, is when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, this next part that we're at in our Apostles' Creed study, what do we mean by Holy Catholic Church and communion of saints? Simple question, what does that mean? Well, when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, We've said this several times over the last year, uh, and you'll see an asterisk even in the bulletin, that does not mean Roman Catholic Church. We've had a few folks who understandably have read that and thought, wait, are th is this a Catholic Church? And yes, we are Catholic in the historical sense of the word. That means that, that we as a church belong to that body of Christ that began with the first Christ followers who received the word from the Spirit we saw that in Acts 2 on Pentecost. And then those who came to faith in Christ from there on out. That is what we believe to be the lowercase c, Holy Catholic Church. But we're not Roman Catholic. 
When we say Holy Catholic Church, what we're referring to in our creed, in the Apostles' Creed, is that whole collection of people from every tribe and tongue and nation from Pentecost to today, and also those who will be redeemed in the future. All who have been justified and are being or will be justified by Christ in Christ. That is what we mean by the Holy Catholic Church. Holy because, we use the word holy because the church is in union with Christ and he is perfectly holy. And Catholic, that word comes from two words in the Greek, kata, which means with respect to, and uh, holos, which means whole, like we use the word holistic. So with regard to or with respect to the whole. Often we say the word just means universal. That's what that word means. And then we use the word church, so holy, you've got the holy, those who are in Christ, Catholic, all who are in Christ, and then church. We use that word in a creed. That word, church, comes from an old Germanic word, kirsha, which comes from the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. The church is the Lord's. In the Bible, the word that is translated into English as church is the word ecclesia. And ecclesia is just an assembly. That's all that means. It's an assembly. So, so built into our word church is the idea that we are the Lord's assembly. That's why there's that denomination of churches called assemblies of God. They're literally saying what it means to be a church in their denominational title. We are the Lord's assembly. So let's put it all together. The Holy Catholic Church is that vast assembly of all the Lord's redeemed people from everywhere and for all time, and all of us who belong to Christ belong to that great assembly. All right? So when we say we believe in that, we're saying we believe that, that such a thing exists. But we're not Roman And the emphasis there is on the word Roman. We don't usually do this, explain why we're not Roman Catholic, but some of us don't know, and that's okay. That's why I'm here. The, the, the Roman church believes that Rome is the place of ultimate authority on earth for the church, and that all that authority rests with the bishop of Rome, a man they call the Pope. They believe him to be the Vicar of Christ, the earthly representative of Christ, like, like an apostle. He speaks on Christ's behalf with the authority of Christ. Biblically, though, it isn't the Pope who is the Vicar of Christ, but the Holy Spirit. So we reject that teaching. That's one of the reasons why we are not Roman Catholic. Further, the Romanists, as I will call them, as Puritans have called them. The, the Romanists believe that Mary, is Jesus' mother, is the mediator who gets us to Jesus, who gets us to God. The Bible doesn't teach that. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, alone. They believe that the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, are a source of grace. The Bible doesn't teach that. Rome teaches that our right standing before God is dependent on our merit. The Bible teaches that our right standing before God is Christ's work alone. And we have access to Christ's work by grace alone through faith alone. 
And what we have in Christ becomes the grounds for our becoming more holy. They believe that they're the only true church, which is why they're called Catholic. But sadly, the Roman church ceased to be a part of the holy Catholic church when they abandoned the faithful teaching of the word and replaced it with man-made traditions. That's not to say that there are not Christians among the Romanists. There are certainly Roman Catholics who are following Christ. But they are Christians, this is important, they are Christians in spite of their church's teachings, not because of their church's teaching. All right? So we're not Roman Catholic. If you get that out in the open, there's, there's several reasons why. There are several more. If you have questions about these things, actually Dustin Saunders has studied the Roman Catholic Church deeply, and he loves to talk about this subject, so talk to him. I can answer your questions as well, but not as well. Um, so secondly, in, in, in the creed, we have this line about the communion of saints. What does that mean? What is the communion of saints? Well, this line, communion of saints, this is an echo of how we often see in Scripture, especially in Paul's writings, how he describes the churches in his letters. Probably best seen in, in this one here, at the beginning to the letter to the church in Corinth. So we've got 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 up on the screen. You can turn there if you like. We're going to dwell here for a couple minutes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. There is a lot of theology packed into this verse. We're going to go just step by step to see where we get communion of saints from this. First, Paul points out that the church is of God. Do you see that? The church is of God. We've already told you what church means. The church is of God. That means they belong to God. Secondly, there is an expression of that people of God, a local assembly of the people of God in the city of Corinth. So the church of God that is in Corinth. Those are two major truths already. The church belongs to God and there are local churches. And then he defines what they are. What are churches? What are these people? Those sanctified in Christ Jesus. It means they are a people of God, we already saw that, who have been made holy, that's what sanctified means, they're made holy in Christ. That means that their holiness, their acceptance before God, the, the very reason they can be called of God is because they are in Christ. If you, are, if you haven't been with us, you will find very quickly that I love the prepositions in the Bible. They're very important in the Bible. You kids who are learning your prepositions right now, um, keep learning them. Know them better than your parents so that you can read the Bible better than your parents. Prepositions are really important when it comes to, to reading, but they're extremely important when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible. We've already seen that. Of God, in Corinth, in Christ. You see the prepositions there? Each of them is packed and loaded with all sorts of richness. 
And these people who have been made holy in Christ, and so they are now of God, are an assembly in Corinth, are called to be saints. Saints is another word for holy ones. They're holy ones. They're already sanctified in Christ. They are called to be what they already are. They're called to be holy ones on earth. Already holy in Christ, be holy ones on earth. And Paul goes on. They're called to be saints together. You see that? There's our communion language. Communion means as one. The saints in Corinth are called to be saints together with all the other saints. They're all called to be one. So we, Del Cero, we are saints together with all people everywhere who, as Paul says, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. All of us are one, there's two, one together. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4. And that holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, we saw last week was a people, right? It was a people who were being gathered by the Holy Spirit to be the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. We saw that in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Let's refresh our memories. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. There's more communion language fellow citizens, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Remember last week, Spirit's work is in creating a dwelling place for himself, for God. The Lord is the Spirit. Peter said the same thing in his letter to the churches in what is now Turkey. 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's a temple. So the question for this morning, the second question, that's who the church is defining our terms in the creed, the second question I want us to look at this morning is why? What's the purpose? What's the point? Why did God create the church? What is the purpose of the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints? And to answer that question this morning, we're going to continue reading in 1 Peter. So we're 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to go to verse 9 and read through verse 12. And we'll be staying here the rest of the morning. This is our text, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once... You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, 
as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the answer to our what is the purpose of the church. The church's purpose is to proclaim and to prove. We're going to see that in this text. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the mighty works of God, the excellencies of God, and through the church's holiness, the church is to prove that they have indeed been redeemed. Proclaim and prove. So to get there, we'll get there in just a moment, but to get there, Peter begins in verse 9 with all these different ways of describing the church. Did you see those? He's already called us a temple. We saw that last week, verse 5. But here in verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Did you happen to pick up on Josh's reading today in Exodus? Sounds a whole lot like our Old Testament scripture reading, doesn't it? God speaking through Moses to Israel said, Exodus 19, 5 through 6, he said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Very, 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 very similar, aren't they? God brought Israel into covenant with him, and if, that word if is, very, is key here, it's a conditional, more grammar for you, it's a conditional statement. If they'll continue in that covenant, then they'll be his treasured possession among all peoples, they'll be his kingdom of priests, and they'll be his holy nation. And what's interesting is that God, through Peter, is telling the church, you and me, they are exactly what God, through Moses, told Israel they were supposed to be. Look again at 1 Peter 2.9. We don't have a conditional phrase here. They are God's chosen race. Verbs are important too. You are God's chosen race. Another way to translate this is elect tribe. So out of all the peoples in the world, God chose these people, the church, in the same way that he had chosen Israel. And the church is also a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. In the same way that Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests, very similar language, isn't it? Israel was to be a kingdom even in the Exodus. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that in the Exodus, they didn't have a human king yet. And yet there's supposed to be a kingdom. In fact, that's one of their difficulties. So by the time you get to 1 Samuel, Israel wanted a king really bad, like a king like all the other nations had. And yet, way back in the Exodus, God is already calling them a kingdom. How is that? Well, God was supposed to be their king. He was their ruler. He was the one issuing their laws that they were to follow. Well, the church is nothing that Jesus isn't our king. Christ means king. That's how we're a royal priesthood. We serve our king, Jesus, in his heavenly courts as his earthly temple. 
Peter also says we're a holy nation. You are a holy nation. Moses said that was supposed to be true of Israel. Out of all the nations in the world, Israel, if they obeyed the Lord, if they lived in holiness before God, they were supposed to be the holy one, the holy nation, the one whose light shone to all the nations. They were to be the righteous nation through whom the glory of God was known to all the other people in the world. If. But for Christians, we as the church are that nation. And I want to be clear, we're not Christian nationalists. We as the church are that nation. This is not talking about America. America sanctions the killing of unborn children for the sake of convenience. America is currently denying the reality that God created humanity, male and female. Through the enslavement and abuse of vulnerable women, legalized, the porn porn industry brings in more than $15 billion in America. Our nation celebrates many, many, many things that God hates, explicitly hates. America is not a holy nation. The church is. The church is. And America's goodness, any country's goodness, is in creating space for the true holy nation of the church to flourish. Because where the church flourishes, so does humanity. For those of you still paying attention, that's what we're fighting to defend. Every freedom that is taken away in this nation is another step closer to eliminating the church's freedom to be the church. To love your neighbor then is to vote against the evil of tyranny and to vote for men and women who vow to make space for the church to be the holy and prophetic witness that the church is called to be. Now, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, all right, because that would be uncouth. But I'll tell you this. I'll give you a hint. One of the people on the ballot on Tuesday insists that the church shouldn't sing. That's all I'm going to say, okay? Politics aside, the church is the holy nation, all right? The church is the holy nation. Finally, verse 9, Peter says, we are a people for his own possession. That means we belong to God. We're his. We've been bought with a price. You see that all over the New Testament. The belongingness was true of Israel. They were redeemed, they were ransomed out of darkness in Egypt. They belonged to God. The Lord even says in Exodus, you shall be my treasured possession. So what's going on here? What's going on? Why are there so many comparisons between the church and Israel from Exodus? What is Peter doing? Well, if all those things in Exodus were going to be true of Israel, if they kept the Lord's covenant... And Peter says they are true of us, the church. You have to see what Peter's doing here. Those things were going to be true of Israel, and they are true of us. It is because Jesus, the true Israelite, kept the covenant with God and gives us, the church, the benefits. All right, that's what we've been seeing through the rest of the Apostles' Creed. By Christ, through the Holy Spirit, We've been brought into something that we formerly had no stake in. And we've been brought into this for a purpose. 
Here it is, the purpose, second part of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This word proclaim, an interesting word because it doesn't have an audience here specified, does it? Look at verse 9. Proclaim to who? Proclaim where? Most of the time in, in, in Scripture, when there is proclamation happening, there's a context for it. So, so the gospel you'll see in Acts is proclaimed in the synagogues. You see in Isaiah, Messiah is, is the one who will proclaim liberty to the captives. That's fulfilled in Christ. Almost always there's a context to proclamation. And that makes sense because the word implies that, that a message is being announced by a messenger who has been sent. That's what proclamation is. But here we see the church as a people who have been set apart by God and their calling and purpose is simply proclaim. No, no audience is mentioned. No place is mentioned. They're just to proclaim the excellences of God, God's mighty works. Period. That's who we are, proclaimers of God's glory. And the reason why it's just that is because this is a fulfillment of God's promises. He said there would be a people who would do this. Isaiah chapter 43, we read it in our call to worship. That chapter of Isaiah is an exhortation to Israel about how they were called to be God's witnesses on the earth, a people who were to be set apart for God's purposes, to be a light to the nations. And in their failure, God says in Isaiah 43, essentially he's not giving up on them. He's, he promises he's going to make his name known through them. Isaiah 43, 19 through 21, look what the Lord says. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness. There's a reason why Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. There's a reason Christianity was known as the way before it was known as Christianity. Right here. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, rivers in the desert, just as an aside, nearly always is Holy Spirit language. Right? So, in, in, uh, in Eden, you have the, the river of life flowing out of Eden. In, in, the, in the heavenly Eden, you have the, the river flowing. This is uh, evidence of God's presence. This is Holy Spirit language. So I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water. The, there it is again. I would give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. That's refreshment to my chosen people. This is what God's saying here is he's sending the Spirit, his Spirit, the Holy Spirit is coming to God's chosen people. Now, who are these people? Look at verse 21. These are the people whom I, the Lord speaking, I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. See it? This is the church. Friends, Holy Spirit comes to the church brings refreshment, and, and, and we are formed as a people of God to declare his praise. That's what we see in, in 1 Peter 2. That's what we see prophesied in Isaiah. This is fulfilled in the church. The way is made by a Messiah. The Spirit is sent so that the people whom God has made for himself 
his treasured possession, they would proclaim his excellencies, his praise. We are to proclaim God's praise. That's our purpose. When we sing of his works, when we rejoice in our Redeemer and sing he's our greatest treasure, the wellspring of our soul, we are proclaiming his excellencies. When we pray to him and confess our sins to him and we praise him in thanksgiving for for his work for us, we are proclaiming his excellencies. When I preach his word, I'm proclaiming his excellencies. And how do we know what His excellencies are? How do we know what God's mighty works are? His Word tells us. The Bible tells us of of God's attributes, of His mercy, His steadfast love, His grace, and His justice. The Bible tells us Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the Bible tells us what that means. And it tells us what God has accomplished in Christ, our Messiah. The Word of God tells of the excellencies of God. And so, so listen, when we read the word out loud, we're proclaiming his excellencies. Even when we just stand up here and read it. That's why we set aside time to do that. One, the Lord commands it. Two, we're living in obedience. Proclaim his excellencies. If our purpose as the church, what Peter is saying, led by the Holy Spirit here, If our purpose as the church is to proclaim his excellencies, then we're going to sing his word, aren't we? And we're going to pray his word, and we're going to preach his word whenever we're gathered together as his church because his excellencies are most vivid and clear and true in his word. Sometimes I've heard this, I want to speak to it, Sometimes it feels that what we sing, pray, or preach isn't relevant to you. Like you're having a hard time in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a family member, and you just want advice. Or maybe you're struggling financially, and you just want to know how to fix it. You want to know that it's going to be better. Maybe you're feeling down. You come in feeling down, and and your hope is coming in, you would leave feeling better about yourself. One of the complaints about preaching God's excellencies is that it doesn't address those things. It does, it's not relevant to my life. Suppose a visitor comes to the church who doesn't know the Lord. They, they wouldn't get it. We, we, need, we need to be more sensitive and so on. This is a That's one of the critiques of doing things God's way is seems irrelevant. But listen, listen, Del Cero. Proclaiming the mighty works of God in his power, in his love, in in his sovereignty, glorifying God, that's what we're made for. Our purpose is to glorify God in worship. And when we do that, when we sing and pray and hear over and over and over again just how glorious God is, one, we're obeying Him, and that's always good. It's right to obey Him. But secondly, it puts everything else into perspective. When the main thing is the main thing, everything else falls into its rightful place. When you realize God is to be praised and not you, 
it goes a long way to fixing your relationships, doesn't it? When you hear God is our Father and provider and sustainer, anxieties about money, they they melt away, don't they? When non-Christians come and they hear the truth about their sin and God's grace, they're convicted of their sin and they repent and they turn to Christ. That's why we do those things. But even if they had zero effect on us, we would proclaim the excellencies of God simply because that's what God says to do. And he's glorified when we do it. But it does have a profound effect on us. When we dwell on Christ, when we hear Christ proclaimed, when we sing his praises, when we see him in his word and his, his excellencies in his word, We are transformed. We grow in love for God, and the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glorious grace, don't they? But the church gathered. Listen, that's what we do when we're gathered. It's what we'll always do when we're gathered. But the church gathered is not the only context in which we glorify God by proclaiming His excellencies. Peter didn't say, only do this when you're gathered together. The word of God is to be proclaimed in the light when we're together. And it's to be proclaimed back into the darkness that we've been brought out of. We we proclaim the goodness of God to one another, and we proclaim the gospel to those lost in the darkness. To our neighbors and our family members and our workplace and our schools We have been called, we've been formed as a people to be proclaimers wherever we are. That's our purpose. And why do we do that? Why do we proclaim God's excellencies? Verse 10, because we're God's people. That's what he has formed his people to do this. We saw in Isaiah 43, I formed them to declare my praises. He's formed us to be his people to do these things. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people... Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, how do we become God's people? Through his mercy. Once you had not received mercy, but now we have. So Peter is using a lot of Old Testament here, all right? So he's saying that we are God's people, and what that means is we clear his excellencies in fulfillment of Isaiah 43. And he's saying that there was once a time when you were not God's people, and now you are. That comes from Hosea chapter 2, directly. Look at what God commands the prophet Hosea, talking about the time of restoration to come that Peter says is fulfilled. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. You see it? Once you were not a people, now you are. Once you've not received mercy, now you have, and you're a people. And so as God's people, you proclaim his excellencies. That reminder to Israel in Hosea was to remind them that the restoration was coming. God's promises were going to be fulfilled. There was a time coming, when you read Hosea, you'll see this. The time was coming when Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, would be reunited under one Messiah, one king, anointed one, together. And Peter is telling the church here, Spirit's telling you and me, we are included in that restoration. Once we were not a people, 
but God has formed us into a people in Christ. And that leads us to the second purpose of the church, to prove to the world that this is happening, to prove to the world the work of Christ, second purpose of the church. Look at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passengers of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That means among the world, among the other nations. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians? We looked at this earlier. You have been sanctified in Christ and you're called to be saints. The work that Christ has accomplished already is the basis for our living in obedience to him as saints. Same thing here in Peter. Actually, it's the same in every New Testament book. Actually, the same in every book of the Bible. We are living stones in God's earthly temple because we've been given the Spirit. All right? We are a chosen race according to the Father's electing work from before time began. We are a royal priesthood according to the Son's kingship. We are a holy nation because we've been made holy in Christ, but we still dwell among the nations. We are a people for God's own possession because we've been purchased by the blood of Christ. All those things are true already. And now our calling, our purpose, is to prove it. That's what this life is. You hear sometimes, oh, you've already become a Christian, why don't you just die and go to heaven today. It's not our calling. Our calling is to to prove Christ's work for the glory of God. We are to prove the work of God in our lives. We are to not just be a chosen, priestly, holy, sanctified people. We are to live as a chosen, priestly, holy, sanctified, spirit-indwelt people. Okay, This is the Christian life. That's what Peter's saying here. We are sojourners and exiles. That means we don't belong here. We are not of the world. And so it's to be evident to everyone around us that we are weird. We are peculiar people. We are strangers to this place. Strangers even to our own flesh. Look at the language he uses. Look at verse 11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. You could also translate that the desires of the flesh. Abstain from them because they wage war against your soul. We we earlier talked about the local church and the universal church. There's another distinction that theologians sometimes make when talking about the church. We talk about the church triumphant and the church militant. The church triumphant are those Christians who have fought the good fight And they've run the race to the end, and they're in God's presence now in heaven waiting for the resurrection. But the church militant, that's us. We're still fighting. We're fighting on multiple fronts. On the the one hand, we're fighting against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, right? Ephesians chapter 6. But we're also fighting against our own flesh. The Christian life is a constant war. And the church is called together to fight it. This is why Paul in his letter to the Philippians calls Epaphroditus his fellow soldier 
And he tells Timothy, he's a soldier of Christ. And in Philemon, he says, Archippus is a fellow soldier. We're fighting a battle. And if you're not fighting, you're losing. The fight against the desires of the flesh. What are we talking about there? The desires of the flesh? We're talking about pride. Fear of man. Selfishness. Lying slander, gossip, bitterness, greed, rage. The desires of the flesh waging war against your soul doesn't mean that there's a constant barrage of sexual temptations around the corner, although for some of you it does. It, but, but here's the thing, we, we, we mistake it. We sometimes think, well, it takes a life, a life of, of adulterous relationships to perjure Christ's work. It doesn't. All the flesh waging war against your soul has to do is convince you that you deserve recognition and respect. And then you begin to justify sin. Then you, be, you begin to justify bitterness. You begin to justify gossip and selfishness and the fear of man. Rather than fighting against it. The sin in you, your own flesh, hasn't been transformed yet. You're not in a glorified body yet. This, your flesh is still of Adam, and it must be put to death daily. And proving Christ's work means this. It means doing just that. It means putting the flesh to death, abstaining from the desires of the flesh because you have the Spirit, and you can walk according to the Spirit. And you have, in the Spirit, the God-given ability in Christ, by the Spirit, to glorify Christ with your life, to prove that you've been redeemed. Your purpose is to prove that Christ has redeemed you from sin, because he has. So rather than being filled with pride, we're humble. Rather than fearing man, we fear God. Rather than being selfish, we're selfless. Rather than lying and slandering and gossiping, we use self-control with our speech and speak the truth in love. Rather than being greedy, we're generous. Rather than being bitter and rageful, we are filled with thanksgiving. And when we are those things, we are proving that we've been redeemed. We're proving the work of Christ. Christ has already proven you acceptable before God. We as the church are to prove the work of Christ to the darkness around us. Look how Peter says it here in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. We think the nations, think the world. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus said almost the exact same thing in Matthew 5. Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see the similarities? Peter says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus says that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Both of these 
you're not going to believe this. This is all Isaiah. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about this time of restoration. Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, this Isaiah 49 is a Messiah prophecy. He's talking about the servant of the Lord who will come and he's saying that the, when the servant of the Lord comes, when Messiah comes, it's not enough that he would just bring Israel back together. When Messiah comes, the glory of, of, of Christ's work was that through him, Israel, true Israel, would be a light for the nations and the salvation would reach the ends of the earth. But light for the nations is the key word there. When Jesus says, let your light shine before others, this is what he's talking about. When Peter says, let your good deeds be seen by others, this is what he's talking about. Our light, our goodness, our redeemed lives in Christ are to be seen in our holy lives. Our shining is to be as those who have been brought into the light. We're to be like little mirrors, reflecting the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ, and proving God's redeeming work in us. For the glory of God, and so that the nations, the Gentiles, the lost people of the world, those in darkness, would see our good deeds, and they would also glorify God on the day of visitation. How are they going to glorify God on the day of visitation? That means when Christ returns, when they're in Christ. It's the only way. They glorify God on the day of visitation because they will, they will know Christ because they've seen him in us. So church, listen, your purpose, here's our last, last bit, your purpose is to proclaim the gospel so that they would hear it. And then to prove that it's true so that they would believe it. That's our purpose as a church. That's why we've been called into Christ. To glorify God in these things. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, you know we need your help in all we do. I pray right now for those who are fighting against the flesh. Lord, would you use your church to help them in the fight? Lord, I pray for those who are not fighting. Lord, would you in them help them to grow disgusted with sin? and to desire Christ and give them a fight.